when you go to an event put on by Martha Washington, you feel as though you have gone to visit the Queen. In Congress, July 4, 1776. Because, Tata, it's America. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. Thanks for joining us for a special episode in celebration of Independence Day. We'll have stories from a lot of wonderful storytellers today. We'll hear a bit of history researched and presented by storyteller Lynn Ruhlman that will bring you up close to George and Martha Washington. We'll hear an immigrant story, a family tale about coming across the ocean to America, the land of opportunity. We'll introduce you to a podcast that with each episode opens a door to history in a way that will capture you like the best stories do. And we'll even hear a tale that will connect thoughts about the American Revolution and the COVID-19 pandemic, a lighthearted tale about a sourdough start with a long and storied history. But before we get to any of that, as we prepared to bring you today's episode of The Appleseed, we took a look again at the document that gave birth to our Independence Day celebrations held every year now for nearly two and a half centuries. We were moved by the words of that document, as we always are, every time we read it. And we thought we'd begin today by bringing to you in the voices of some of the members of the Appleseed team and some of our friends, some of the language of the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. The first few paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, read for you by some of our friends and loved ones, and recorded by Jen Baker, one of our assistant producers. The Declaration, of course, goes on from there through a long list of specific grievances held by the colonies against Great Britain, and after that long list of grievances, just above the signatures gathered in the weeks after the document was approved on July 4th, 1776, the Declaration concludes with this paragraph. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, 
solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Though some delegates to the Congress signed the document on July 4th, it would be some time before the Declaration of Independence would be signed by all 56 whose signatures appear on the document. Some of those signatories weren't even present when the document was approved. Some hadn't even been sworn into office yet, but they wanted their names to appear on this document, immortalized as having stood up to be counted among those who pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to American independence. you celebrate Independence Day this year, however you continue to fight for the ideals hinted at but barely dreamed of in their fullest flower by those associated with the Congress in 1776, we hope you've enjoyed hearing the words, some of them, that appear on the document. And we hope you have a happy Independence Day. We'll celebrate together with some of our favorite storytellers on the Appleseed. Thanks for spending a moment with us, thinking about and listening to the language of the Declaration of Independence, the document behind the celebration, and behind many of our deepest and most cherished thoughts and feelings about being Americans. Now, there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed, and to introduce us to the story we're going to hear now, I'm pleased to be joined by Jeff Simpson, the producer of the Appleseed. Jeff, we're going to hear a story from Lynn Ruhlman. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear. So this is a story that comes from a collection of stories all about the first batch of presidents, U.S. presidents. <laughs> right. And oddly enough, they all seem to be from Virginia. I guess it's not that <laughs> odd when you think about it. But uh, there are so many wonderful stories about the founding fathers and these great men who who formed this nation. And you don't hear enough stories, in my opinion, about the women <laughs> that served right alongside these men. And so this is uh, from the perspective of a close family friend of George and Martha Washington talking a little bit about their courtship and then, you know, more about the war that ensues. Not from the courtship, thankfully. <laughs> Not the war between George and Martha Washington. Right, yeah. yeah. yeah right. Now, this is, again, a terrific story told by Lynn Ruhlman, who's done a lot of research about, again, the lives and relationships of these early presidents. Here's a story about George and Martha Washington. Virginia is sometimes called the mother of presidents because eight United States presidents so far have been born in Virginia. The first president from Virginia, 
was also the first president of the brand new United States of America, George Washington. The story of George and his wife Martha is told here through the eyes of Martha's longtime friend, Mrs. Chamberlain. I simply cannot wait to go to the ball tonight. I cannot wait to see Martha again, but I cannot decide which of these gowns to wear, the red one or the blue one. Oh, well, I'll decide after I fix my hair. You know, some of my friends say that when you go to an event put on by Martha Washington, you feel as though you have gone to visit the Queen. And it's true. But I knew Martha a long time before she was any kind of a queen figure, or even the president's wife. We both grew up on plantations in Virginia. We did all the things girls are supposed to do. We learned from our mothers how to cook and sew, how to make candles, well, how to do everything needed to run a plantation. We even learned how to teach other people to do what's needed on a plantation. Our fathers gave us some lessons in reading and writing, but we didn't have the tutors the way our brothers did. I'll tell you a little secret. Martha never did learn to write very well. We still exchange letters, and do you know, she still spells dog with two G's. What Martha really preferred was being a tomboy. She loved riding her horse. But I will never forget the day that she decided to go visit her uncle. She took off on her horse across the hills of her family's plantation and through the forests. When she got to her uncle's house, someone opened up the door and in she went. But she didn't get off the horse first. She rode that horse right up the porch steps and into the foyer. But when we were teenagers, she was the same as all the rest of us girls. We used to gossip so about the boys. Then we both got married. She married Daniel Custis, and they had four lovely children. But a few years later, first two of their children died, and then Daniel died. My husband, Mr. Chamberlain, and I began to invite Martha and her two remaining children for visits at our plantation near Williamsburg. Once, while she was there, I knew that we were going to have a very special guest. But I didn't tell Martha. When he arrived, I had my husband bring him into the drawing room where Martha was seated. Mr. Chamberlain said, Martha, I would like to have you meet the Commander-in-Chief of Virginia's Army, George Washington. And George, this is Martha Dandridge Custis. You should have seen her face. He cut quite a figure, you know, still does. Six feet, two inches tall, and two hundred pounds. You could just about hear their two hearts beating. It didn't even take them one dinner together to figure out how much they had in common. They both came from families that grew tobacco. They both loved their horses. 
and they both preferred the quiet, homey life of the farm to city life. And George adored her two children, Jack and Patsy. He even changed his plans so that he could stay overnight with us that very evening, just so he could spend more time playing with the children and talking with Martha. It wasn't but a few months before the two of them got married. Wasn't I proud that I was the one that introduced them? They went to live on George's plantation, Mount Vernon, and lived there very quietly and happily for, oh, more than ten years. But it was neither quiet nor happy in America. We were beginning to rebel against being ruled by another country on the other side of the ocean. We hated having our money taxed and spent in Britain. It was clear there would be a war to fight for our independence. But in order to have a war, we would need an army. So the Continental Army was organized. There was only one man who could possibly lead the army, and that was George Washington. Martha didn't want George to be general. She didn't want to risk being a widow a second time. But she set about doing the job that she had been well-trained to do, taking care of their plantation by herself. She waited for George's letters. Oh, but the mails are so slow. They do not come often. But in early winter, she received one that said, in part, My dearest Martha, our army has set up headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the winter. Please, Martha, come visit us. Martha came to me and said, what does he expect me to do? He knows I have barely been outside of Virginia, and now he wants me to travel without him across the colonies to Massachusetts? I did not say a word. I just looked at her and waited. Until at last she said, oh, But if I don't go... Who knows when I'll see George again? I won't know what he's doing or what he's thinking. I will go. So she went home and packed up their biggest carriage with everything she could fit from their plantation. Hams from their smokehouse, nuts and apples from their trees, fruitcakes and jellies that she had made. And then she set off across the icy, rutted roads of the winter. It took her one entire month to make that journey. But when she had survived that, she knew that she would spend every winter of the war with George wherever his headquarters were. And she did. She never let anyone know how very much the gunfire in the distance frightened her. But when heavy fighting started up again in the summer, George would send her back home to Mount Vernon. While she was in camp, she would mend George's clothes. She would find the biggest pot available and fill it with whatever food she could procure in order to make soups for the soldiers. She organized other wives and sweethearts in the camp so that they could all knit socks for the men and take care of the sick and the wounded. She told me that the worst of those eight war winters 
was the one in Valley Forge. America had lost so many battles, and we were down to almost nothing in supplies. No warm clothes, few blankets, very little food, not even clean straw for those men to sleep on. Three thousand men had no shoes or coats. They had to wrap their feet in rags. But even so, whenever they walked across the camp, they left bloody footprints in the snow. When Martha walked past the men in the camp, as bad as they felt, if they were able, those soldiers would stand up to honor Lady Washington, as they liked to call her. They all knew and loved her, and they all understood how much she cared about them and how much she was doing for them. At last, we won the war, and the fighting stopped. When you would walk through town, you would hear people arguing, how are we going to appoint a king for our new country? But then the Continental Congress convened and decided for our new democracy, not a king, but a president. There was only one possible choice for president, George Washington. He was elected unanimously. Oh. Martha didn't want to be the first president's wife. She wanted to live happily, quietly, peacefully at Mount Vernon with George. But she knew the country needed him. So she set about forging the job of president's wife for all the women who would follow her. She has done a fine job. And she puts on a fine ball. And for tonight's ball... I think I will wear the red gown. Lynn Ruhlman with a story about George and Martha Washington. It's been my pleasure to sit and listen to it with our producer, Jeff Simpson. Jeff, thanks for bringing us that story. Absolutely. It, to me, it's a good reminder that, you know, even when there are these major events that happen in the world, when you boil it right down to it, it's just a, a sweet courtship story between these two people that were in love. Yeah. And it really makes me want to go and talk to my parents and ask them more about their courtship and some of the things that they accomplished together. And I've been I've been making a habit of that every time I'm with my parents lately. <laughs> You'll bring us some of those stories, won't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> More than you care to hear. Yeah, we, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And that includes stories about George and Martha Washington. Jeff, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Lots more coming up on The Apple Seed. In a moment, we're going to introduce you to a cool podcast. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Apple Seed. Here's Sam Payne. We're so glad you're with us today for an hour's worth of stories in celebration of Independence Day. And we've got an immigrant story coming up, a family tale from Corinne Stavish that will help us imagine what it's like to come across the sea, eyes bright with the hope that America promises. And we'll hear a lighthearted story about a sourdough start with an interesting connection to the American Revolution, too. But first, a conversation with a friend. 
great stories come into our lives in so many ways through tales that we tell again and again around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire, through songs that we let into our lives and into our hearts and give us the material for stories that we share forever and ever with the people that we love. Certainly the things we see on screen and the things we read in books fill us with great stories. And these days, radio and podcasts do a lot of the same thing. It's a pleasure to have behind the microphone with me C.L. Salazar, a podcast professional. The thing about Ciel is she's a history lover, right? Yes. Yeah, Ciel, it's great to have you with us here on The Appleseed. It's great to be here. And we've had conversations about history podcasts, and we want to talk about a history podcast that is one that you sort of know pretty intimately, right? It's a it's a podcast that you work on. Yes. And listen, I just want to hear you say the name of the podcast because it's so delicious that, I mean, just hear the name and you think, I'm in, right? Yeah. So yeah. here's the name. The podcast is called History That Doesn't Suck. I know, right? <laughs> history. <laughs> and it is history that doesn't suck. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. All right. So tell us a little bit about History That Doesn't Suck and why. Right. So History That Doesn't Suck is a story-driven American history podcast. It was started by Greg Jackson. He's the creator and host. And I work behind the scenes on the podcast as the senior researcher and writer. Right. And he decided to start that podcast because he realized that so many people say, oh, I hate history. Or they say, oh, I love history. And what they really mean is, I love a good story. Yeah. Right? And so he decided that he could bring a good story that was based in really good historical research because of his professional background. Yeah. And bring that story to life for people. So they were learning history and learning good history, but also learning it through entertaining stories. Isn't I love what you said just a moment ago, but when people say, I love history, that really is what they mean, yeah. isn't it? They, I, what, I love the stories, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And certainly all of the things that history can teach you and things like that, that can be kind of glibly recited, but it's the stories that put it kind of down deep. And so a podcast that kind of takes apart some of those things that we know about history and, and tells the stories behind those things. Again, I, right. used, I used the word delicious, and I'm sticking with it. I think you should. I think it's a great word, Sam. So <laughs> I, uh, I didn't start the podcast with Greg. He actually started it on his own. But about three years ago, I started listening to another podcast that I listened to, and I heard an ad for History That Doesn't Suck. And I was I was hooked right yeah. from the word go. And so right from the title, yeah, right? Right from You're the like title. Yeah. I was like, this is for me. I listened to the first couple of episodes and I laughed a lot and I learned a lot. And so I decided this really is for me. And I gathered up all of my courage and I emailed Greg. And I said, Hey, here are my credentials. I have a degree in history. Yeah. I speak a little French. I would be interested in being a research assistant if ever you get to the oh. point that you need one. And he emailed me right back and he said, I do need one. And I started fact-checking his scripts. Mm. And then from there, I started doing more research. And then today, here we are three years later, um, I'm a partner in the company and the senior researcher and writer. So <laughs> it's awesome. We've got, we started with the causes of the revolution and we're in the middle of the civil war now. I imagine, right, that that when you come into a project like this, it's not just, maybe this goes without saying, right, but it's not just 
accessing stuff that you already know, right? Right. You, you walk into something like this not just as the repository of facts against which the, the content of the podcast needs to be checked, but it's a voyage of discovery for you Absolutely. Too, right? Oh, absolutely. And I love the things that I've learned along the way. And I love the people that I've gotten to know along the way. I love finding myself in history. Yeah. I love finding myself with these, you know, we call them characters and yes, they're real historical figures. <laughs> um, sometimes we get a little pushback on that, but we call them characters because they are characters to yeah. us. Yeah, they're characters in the story. Right? right. They're characters in our stories. And, and I love getting to know them and making them real flesh and bone. I think sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, you know, such and such founding father was, yeah. was perfect. Right. And, and I could never reach that. You know, when we bring them down to human level, we make them real. We can connect. You know, they can be ours. In in just a few moments, give us an example. Somebody that you fell in love with as you as you worked on the podcast. Oh, that gosh, that's a really good question. I think I would probably have to say uh, Martha Washington. Huh. So I really didn't know much about her, but in the process of doing research for the podcast, I ended up reading a biography on her, um, and she gets mentioned a fair amount in biographies of George Washington sure. as well. Yeah. She's a very real person. I really have a lot of respect for her. She took on a role that she basically had to create from scratch as First Lady of the United States, yeah. the first First Lady. Right. And um, she's, you know, a socialite from Virginia. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't have a lot in common with women from New England. Yeah. And she doesn't have a lot in common with women who are, you know, moving west at the time. And of yeah. course, we say, I say West. I mean Ohio. You're right. That's right. <laughs> not California. It's not West yeah. at this point. Um, but she takes on that role. She really figures out how to be uh, a key player in the political game for George because yeah. at that point he's losing his hearing and getting a little grumpy. Sure. sure. <laughs> and she knows how to grease the wheels. She knows how to host the parties and get people to talk to each other who are on different sides of the quote-unquote political aisle. Of course, at this stage of the game, there's not technically political parties, but yeah. um, she's really good at this. And I just, I love her. She's a fascinating woman who took on a lot of different challenges whose life took some pretty significant turns that I'm pretty sure, sure she wasn't expecting as yeah, a young woman. Yeah. And she really took them on and really enjoyed them. Well, you can hear the the you can hear the exhilaration of discovering the story as you as you talk about Martha Washington. And of course there are adventures for anybody who tunes in. Right. Uh, just like the adventure that you're describing. And we're talking about the podcast is called History That Doesn't Suck. And it's my pleasure to be chatting about it with uh, C.L. Salazar, who is the researcher and writer on that podcast mm -hmm. and uh, just a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much, CL. Thanks. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. It's a delight to chat with CL about a podcast worth checking out. And speaking of podcasts, you can Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day from the Appleseed. Full hour-long episodes like the one you're listening to now and also mini episodes containing a single story, usually just a few minutes long, in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to spend those few minutes with a great story. Appleseed extras, we call them. And up next, a family story about coming across the sea to invest in and the promise of a new nation and the opportunities it holds. Here's It's America from Corinne Stavish. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. I won't go back. 
my teenage grandmother shouted at her father in a voice that Moses must have used when he shouted at Pharaoh, let my people go. Ethel, you talk to your tata, the father, like that? What makes you think you can make such a decision and do what you want, such a young girl? Because, Tata, it's America. Still, Ethel, I'm the father, the Tata, you must do what I say. Tata, you have to go back without me. I came here to visit with Tante Freda and Cousin Pauline, and now I will stay. What makes you think you can stay here without your parents? Because, Tata, it's America. They fought all night. In Yiddish, of course. Neither knew a word of English. Ay, she was an uppity one, that little Ethel. Wiry and fiery. She had a sharp tongue and always preferred the vinegar of truth to the honey of insect catching. By the morning, she had exhausted him. Okay, Ethel, I'll leave your ticket here. You'll stay for maybe two weeks, and then you'll come back to Galicia. But my grandmother had no intention of ever returning to Galicia then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was a place filled with hardship and horror. My grandmother was never going back. So she remained in America. Her father traveled back to Galicia where an ocean separated them and left her return ticket. The couple of weeks turned into a couple of months that turned into a couple of years, during which letters flew across the Atlantic. Ethel, come back. No, come back. No, come back. No, I'm coming to get you. Then destiny intervened big time on my grandma's behalf. Her father booked passage to return to America to get her in the summer of 1914, a time that would become known as the Guns of August. World War I erupted like a stinking boil, and my grandmother stayed in America. She set about the business of becoming an American. First, she had to work. She lived with her Tante Freda and helped her with the children and housework. That got her room and board. But Ethel liked to shop and purchase pretty things. She was, after all, beautiful enough to have been a Gibson calendar girl. And she liked to potchki. Potchki is one of those Yiddish words for which there is no easy translation that doesn't take less than a paragraph. The best word is fuss. She would spend time arranging a platter of cookies, hours rolling dough paper thin to make strudel. Details absorbed her. She could trim and rim things. In other words, she was a Jewish Martha Stewart. 
So she went to work in a hat shop, and with her fine, steady needle, adorned fashionable hats with buttons and bows, ribbons, lace, and silk flowers. Next door to the hat shop was a wig shop, where Jewish immigrant women went to buy wigs to keep their heads covered at all times. She fashioned beautifully coiffed wigs. She, of course, would never wear hats or wigs. After all, it's America, a place where she could assert her independence and freedom. Next step was to learn English. Somehow she managed enough of the bureaucracy to figure out how to start night school. It was a class overloaded with eager immigrants from around the world, each speaking a different language. The room bubbled with sounds from Greek, Spanish, Russian, Polish, Chinese, a bouquet of languages. The teacher had to have been a graduate of the Tower of Babel U. I figure by the time everyone said, hello, how are you, and goodbye, in their own language and English, class was over. But my grandma didn't care how long the class took. She had already cast her eye on the young man in the next row. He was so cute, and he was tall. Well, okay. He was taller, which meant that when my four-foot, ten-inch grandmother wore her two-inch high-button heels, they were the same size. Sam Borum was handsome, with fierce, large blue eyes and a dedicated radicalism. He was smart and witty and passionate. He looked like a revolutionary. So she set her hat for him. He set his cap for her. She was a hat maker. He was a cap maker. It was destiny. Caps and hats, hats and caps. And that wasn't all they had in common. He lived at 647 East 11th Street. She lived at 604 East 9th. So he would walk her home each night. Once they walked home from night school during a blizzard, and to protect those high-button heels, he hoisted her on his shoulders and delivered her home. It must have reminded him of how he had escaped from Tsarist Russia to avoid being conscripted into service, which for a Jewish boy meant 25 years. His parents had arranged for peasants to hide him in a wagon and cover him with straw and take him to a port where he found a ship that would complete his journey to America. Getting to the port during a blizzard, the wagon got stuck, and they hoisted the young boy on their shoulders and carried him to his freedom route. Neither knew their exact birth date though both knew they had been born in 1893. So they made up days next to one another. I've always believed that it was a romantic indicator of how they would live side by side. She chose March 20th. He chose March 21st. My grandmother 
was an older woman. They were married September 9, 1916. My mother was born April 7, 1917. I'll pause so that you can do the math on your fingers without a calculator. My grandmother winked and said, It's America! My grandfather just winked. They began their lives together, side by side, two immigrants. They were the self-selected survivors who packed their world on their backs, risked, got on the boats, and came to what Lincoln called the last best hope, America. And I'm just a tiny part of their legacy. Sometimes I sit in my office, in profile to the door, facing my computer, absorbed with work, and a student walks by, leans in, and startles me by calling, Professor, Professor Stavish. Sometimes I don't turn to the student because my heart swells heavily with emotion and I instinctively look up where my grandparents suspend above me. Grandpa nudges grandma and says, Ethel, give a cook, give a look, from us, a professor. She shrugs and waves him off, not at all surprised, as if she knew all along how the story would end as if she's forgotten all the hardships, the struggle, as if she hadn't lived through two world wars sending her two sons to fight in the European theater during the Second World War, having to sign a permission slip for the younger, who was only 17. But then she had had a brother in Dachau. As if she's forgotten that she lived through a Great Depression through poverty and lost her fourth child because of that poverty. And then, just when she could have lived a little and laughed a little, he died suddenly from a massive heart attack at the age of 60, and she followed him eight years later after losing a fierce battle with leukemia. Nah, she's forgotten all that. She just turns to him with that knowing smile and says, Sam, no, of course we got a professor. After all, it's America. It's America, a family story told for you by Corinne Stavish. You know, many of us have families who came here from somewhere else, and those stories are worth knowing and worth telling. We always hope that the stories we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people you love. And if you know the story of where you came from, 
open your mouth. And if you don't, it's a great time to ask someone who might. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Up next, a story from Madeline Potts, who will tell us the tale of a sourdough start with a surprising history and an uncertain future. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. If you're just joining us, we've been enjoying an hour of stories in celebration of Independence Day, and we're not done. We've heard stories about George and Martha Washington and about coming across the sea to a land filled with promise and opportunity. We even began our hour together by reading a bit of the document behind the celebration, the Declaration of Independence. And in our last story today, we want to have some fun. This is told for you by Madeline Potts, the Florida storyteller, with a tale to tell that puts us in mind of the hobby that has occupied so many during the COVID-19 pandemic, the making of sourdough bread. Now, the sourdough start in this story has allegedly a past that makes it appropriate for an Independence Day episode. Here's Sourdough Starter by Madeline Potts. Mary Louise Williams was a petite lady with silver hair and a wrinkled face, and she always wore her pearls and a brooch. And Mary Louise Williams was 78 years of age when she decided it was time to learn to play the piano. And that was how I met her. I was her piano teacher. Once a week, I traveled to her house. We started at middle C. We worked our way up the keyboard and down the keyboard. She learned to read music. She practiced. And she made great progress. Mary Louise Williams was also a daughter of the American Revolution. Her house was like a museum of American history with antiques and memorabilia all over. And after a while, she began to treat me a little like the daughter she never had. And I would stay after her lessons for a little bit and visit. And then one day, She said she had something for me, and she motioned for me to follow her into the kitchen. And then with a grandiose gesture, she pointed to a little mason jar on the counter, half filled with a pasty substance. (laughs) It was sourdough starter. She had received it from her mother on her wedding day, who had gotten it from her mother on her wedding day, and in this way it had been passed on since the documented blossoming of their family tree back in the days of the American Revolution. And now she was bestowing a portion of it on me, along with the family's secret recipe for Sunday morning sourdough biscuits, confident that not only would I nurture and preserve this living entity, (laughs) but also 
her tradition of Sunday morning sourdough biscuits. Well, this thought was a little bizarre. <laughs> and, and I did some quick math. Oh, it had been oh, over 200 years since the American Revolution times, 52 Sundays in a year, and that would be <gasps> over 10,000 consecutive Sundays of Sunday morning sourdough biscuits. And this thought was so alarming that it produced an emergency reaction from my brain, which had suddenly grown a voice that was shouting at me from inside my head, no, don't take it. I knew that voice was right. Me and that sourdough starter were not a match. I mean, I'm not a reliable consumer. I just as soon have leftover pizza as Rice Krispies in the morning. The only thing I make with regularity is coffee. And that's an addiction. And, and the voice shouted, say no, thank you. Oh, but I have always had a problem with those words. I mean, I, I can say I'm fine when they're attached to a simple amenity. Would you like some water? No, thank you. Would you like to sit? No, thank you. But when they're attached to something that requires responsibility and effort and time, they seem to disappear from my vocabulary. And, and, and even as the voice was pleading, say no, thank you, the words that came out of my mouth were, oh, Miss Williams. <laughs> That is so nice of you. Thank you so much. And me and the creature in the jar <laughs> departed from my next student. Well, it was August in Florida. It was about a zillion degrees. And I was traveling in my dark green, unair-conditioned Volkswagen bus. And I took the sourdough starter and I put it on the passenger seat. And I taught my next student. And when I returned to my vehicle, <gasps> the sourdough starter had started. It had lifted up the top of the mason jar. It had ground tentacles that reached out of the jar and onto the seat. And, and well, I cleaned it up as best as I could with some of those teensy tiny tissues that come in those purse-sized packets. And then I, I took the jar and making sure nobody was watching, I dumped some of it out along the curb and the voice said, dump it all. Get rid of it now. Don't be a chicken. But how could I fail in my custodial responsibility within the first hour? So I brought it home and I put it on the counter to be dealt with later. Later turned into the next day. And when I went into the kitchen, the sourdough starter was 
festering. The goo had grown. It was puddling on the counter. It was streaking down the cabinet doors and pooling on the floor. And I wiped it up, and as I tossed some of it into the garbage, the boy said, throw it out, throw it out. Oh, and I really wanted to. You know, just, just toss it in the garbage. Let it make its way to the top of some mountain of trash where it could grow itself into the next great wonder of the world. Oh. But it had been around since the American Revolution. It had... It had witnessed the inauguration of every American president, the birth of space exploration. Oh, and I knew, I knew in my heart, I knew in my soul, if I destroyed that sourdough starter, the ghosts of all those daughters of the American Revolution were going to come and haunt me the rest of my life. So I put the jar back on the counter and promised myself I'd make those biscuits in the morning. But life got in the way of my good intentions. The next morning, my youngest daughter spiked a temperature of 103. We spent most of the afternoon in the waiting room of the family clinic. We made it home in time for the afternoon thunderstorm that took out the electricity. We spent the evening collectively sweating by candlelight in the living room. And at 10 o'clock at night, when the power finally came back on, I tucked my kids into bed, I kissed them goodnight, and I went into the kitchen. <laughs> the sourdough starter was festering. It was growing bubbles the size of walnuts that burbled and gurgled and splashed on the counter. And I looked at it and I thought, how did those women do it? Generation after generation, Sunday after Sunday, how did they get up and make those sourdough biscuits? Didn't they once, just once ever get up and go, nah. I don't feel like making biscuits today. Oh, I lack the stamina of those valiant women. And I was also sick and tired of cleaning up goop. So I took that jar, I put it in a big, wide, deep plastic bin, and I took that bin and shoved it onto the floor of the guest bathroom, and I went to bed. In the morning, I procrast procrastinated as long as possible. And then I finally got up the gumption to inspect the damage. But there was nothing there. Not a drop, not a slop, not a speck, not a splatter, not in the jar, not in the bin, not on the floor. And I thought, Someone's gotten rid of it for me. Who would do that? My husband. And I went running across the house. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my darling. You have done for me what I couldn't do for myself. You have saved me from myself. And he looked at me. What are you talking about? 
sourdough starter. It's gone. Didn't you get rid of it? No. And it was at that precise moment that I heard it. An eerie, mournful sound, and I thought, oh, they're here, the ghosts. The ghosts are here, I'm doomed. But just then, my big black Labrador retriever came lumbering into the room. His head was down. His tail was between his legs. His sides were distended with gas. This noble creature, man's best friend, who, who often found the most despicable debris absolutely delectable, had found the sourdough starter and licked up every last drop of it. And now he was slowly, painfully making his way across the house, stopping every now and then and sniffing the air behind him. as if he could outdistance himself from those noxious fumes. So I took a breath, and I gave him a hug. And I patted him, and I said, you're a good boy, you're a good doggy. And then I took him outside and left him on the patio to air out. And I never did have the nerve tell Mary Louise Williams the fate of her sourdough starter. But ever since that time, I have been much more thoughtful about the responsibilities I accept into my life. And every once in a while, I actually do summon up the courage to say, no thank you. <laughs> Madeline Potts with Sourdough Starter, a story connected however tenuously to the American Revolution and also however tenuously to a hobby adopted by so many during the COVID-19 pandemic, the making of sourdough bread. We hope your Independence Day celebrations are safe and happy and that they fill you and your loved ones with thoughts and feelings that you can share with one another in the celebration of American independence. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. It's been a pleasure for us today to bring you that story by Madeline Potts about the sourdough starter and also stories from Corinne Stavish, who told us that family story called It's America, and the story George and Martha, told for us by Lynn Ruhlman, and, of course, a little reading from the Declaration of Independence itself. You heard the voices of some of our Appleseed team members and some of our friends. 
You can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive of Appleseed episodes there that you'll enjoy. Stories that are already favorites, tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, and more. And also stories that will become favorites as you listen. Again, I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us today on The Appleseed. We hope you enjoyed today's stories. If you're new to the show, know that we'll bring you another helping of tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal tales and historical tales and more to the air on the very next episode of The Appleseed. We're here just about every day. We've been doing it since 2013, and we hope to be doing it for many, many years to come. The whole Appleseed family is dedicated to that. Now, if you like The Appleseed, you'll enjoy some of the other programs produced by BYU Radio, talking about shows like The Lisa Show and Top of Mind and Constant Wonder. And we're also talking about adventure podcasts like Treasure Island 2020, the time-traveling, swashbuckling pirate adventure in 10 parts that's a retelling of the classic Robert Louis Stevenson novel. There's stuff like that at byuradio.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Sam Payne. Join us again on The Appleseed, won't you? We'll see you then. (laughs) 